Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed. Welcome back to the show. If you enjoy the show, you can support us at glow.fm slash E2. That's glow.fm slash E2. The whole thing takes about a minute. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by Bruce. If you're working from home and have canceled all your in-person stuff lately as a result of this COVID pandemic, you might have also dodged your dentist appointment. Thankfully, Bruce is taking care of that. Through their state-of-the-art electric toothbrush subscription shipped direct to your door, Bruch was developed in collaboration with dentists to ensure an amazing clean every time. Ultra-soft bristles, six cleaning modes, sonic wave tech. It is the cleanest my teeth have felt since I left the dentist, which was about a year ago. Anyway, for more info on Bruch and to give your teeth the best hygiene they've seen in a year, go to bruch.com and don't forget to use the code E215 for a 15% discount. That's Bruch, B-R-U-U-S-H dot com. And don't forget to use the code E215 for 15% off. In this special episode, we're checking in again with my colleague, Adam Mutchler, who is based in Washington to get his take on what's happening in the U.S. one week after Election Day. Adam is a partner at the Qadar Group and has a great understanding of how leaders work in high-stakes environments, ranging in scope from startups to Fortune 100s, not-for-profits to federal agencies and public sector and beyond. He is also my go-to for anything related to U.S. politics, which is still top of mind for many listeners of this podcast. So a ton has happened in just 10 days since the election was called. Trump's comments related to the election, including claims of fraud and mail-in ballot corruption, his flurry of lawsuits and supporting rhetoric on social media. We dig into that today. We also discuss the current state of play in the last few states where there is no clear winner yet or no clear winner has been declared. In addition to chatting about the Biden-Harris ticket and their top priorities, what lies ahead in these next couple of months leading up to January 20th, and whether Trump may run again in 2024. So with that long-winded intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Adam Mutchler. You know, it's funny. Last time we were talking, which was just a short while ago, there was quite a bit of anxiety, let's put it to put it mildly. Yeah. Leading up to uh, last Tuesday. And for listeners, we're recording today on November 10th. So exactly one week after election day. So can you describe the mood on the morning of last Tuesday, November 3rd, versus the mood in Washington, uh, D.C., where you are today on November 10th. Yeah, the mood, I would say, so Tuesday morning, election day, I, I would say if you are of the uh, Democratic Party persuasion, there was still a lot of anxiety. I mean, I think there's a lot of PTSD from the 2016 presidential election. You know, the polls had 
you know, for a lo- almost a whole election cycle, Hillary leading and even towards the end when it was close, still didn't feel like she would not win. And so I think coming into election day 2020, there was a lot of hope, but also there was a really strong layer of anxiousness around what will the actual outcome be. Fast forward to today, one week later, uh, when almost every news outlet has called Biden as the winner and there's still counting going on in several states, but Biden has clinched the nomination and is the president-elect and and seems that the other states that are still counting will also go for Biden, which would only strengthen his lead. I would say that there is the, the number one word that's kind of come up since they called it on Saturday is relief, kind of like there's an exhale. I don't think that there, there is an overwhelming sense of jubilation in the sense that it's not like everything is going to be different for the next two months. And it's not like on day one, everything will be different immediately. But I, I really feel like it's like this sense of relief. But there's still a lingering level of anxiety that, you know, the president hasn't conceded and that prominent members of the Republican Party aren't really acknowledging Joe Biden's win, uh, even though he's won the popular vote and the electoral college vote as well. And so there's still a level of uncertainty and discomfort Mm -hmm. in what's going on. Given what's happened in this election and the poll numbers showing, I guess, a, a quite a substantial lead, I'd say, for Joe Biden heading into November 3rd. What do you make of polling in America? I would say it has merit. Biden was projected to win by all the polls, and he did. So they could say that. Um, I think the spread was obviously off. There might be an argument that the Electoral College spread will be closer, winning by three percent of the popular vote and counting. And what'll likely happen is the the tallies in like Pennsylvania that that will increase his his popular vote lead because um, it's a very populous state that's still counting. And Atlanta, you know, is a populous area and it, it's it keeps on sort of nudging towards Biden. But I, I think that what I would say is polls at this point are a data point, but not the data points to consider. You know, I think Trump has a very energetic base. And they, I think, surprised a lot of people about how their turnout was, their interest in, ele- in voting on election day. And we're learning a lot. I, mean, I think the way, that we, the way that we manage our elections and the way that we predict our elections, it, it's shifting. You mentioned Pennsylvania. So the last time we talked, we did mention Pennsylvania as being a key state that could be the ultimate decider. Neither one of us are statisticians or into politics, but I think we did vaguely make that call. So whatever, that's a sidebar. But (laughs) Pennsylvania certainly ended up being a key state, and it was the state that ultimately put Biden over the 270 mark. Where do you see the chips falling in the remainder of these states that are still, quote unquote, too close to call? Yeah, so I think we definitely talked about Pennsylvania. You know, I think that there was... By, I think, Wednesday or Thursday, it became very clear, at least on all of the reporting and all of the counting, that Biden had multiple paths to victory uh, from an electoral college standpoint, which is how we choose our president or our yeah, president in the United States. But he didn't need Pennsylvania, which was very interesting. You know, Arizona still has a spread, and I'm just looking at it right now, 
Uh, it looks like it's over 20,000. It's about 25, oh, excuse me, 15,000 votes. I misspoke. And when you get down to like 10,000, 15,000, even 5,000 votes, it's likely that that lead isn't going to change, even if it is, it's in, it's a less than half a percent difference, even if it does go to a recount. So I think Arizona is likely to, to end up being Biden. You know, Georgia is 0.3% difference and it's a, it's a, it's a smaller, it's a smaller difference. Uh, it's 11,000 votes. But again, when you're in the thousands of votes, 10,000 plus, it's unlikely that a recount is going to swing the vote. That kind of goes beyond the level of human error. If it was hundreds of votes, maybe even if, like if they found another ballot box or something, which had a thousand votes, you know, it, that could swing something that, that would be super close, but it would be a technicality. And most people are saying that, that it won't shift. So I, just based on what everyone is reporting on and not based on what politicians are saying in the, you know, in certain circles on the Republican side, Arizona is likely to be a Biden state. Georgia is likely to be a Biden state. And those are two huge pickups because, and I was reading an article earlier. I don't think Georgia, the last time Georgia went for a democratic president was 92. For, yeah, exactly. For Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And they cited in the, in the New York times article, one of the reasons why it even happened is because there was a third party candidate who cannibalized Republican votes, Ross Perot or Perot, excuse me, who actually took a ton of votes from Bush in that election. And Arizona, I think, is similar. It's been decades, maybe 25 years or more since it's gone for a uh, Democratic candidate. So those are two interesting states that at least CNN, MSNBC and New York Times, which are, you know, my sort of primary news sources. There's an interesting shift happening in population in the United States and in voter in sort of voter demographics. And Georgia and Arizona are kind of showing showing up in, in that way. So I think Arizona and Georgia, based on what's being reported, North Carolina hasn't been called. I'm not sure why, because it's over it's over a percent difference likely to be Trump. Pennsylvania's not going to switch. Wisconsin's not going to switch. Looking at that nineteen ninety two election stat, so also Clinton, you know, just had eked out that victory by about half a percent. Yeah. So it was quite close uh back in ninety two, but definitely significant. Yeah. Um, Arizona and Georgia being flipped this year. It's an indicator that the country is changing. Also, to be fair, 71 million people voting for Trump is also an indication that the country is changing in another way. You know, that there is more representation on both sides and there is more energy on both sides to vote. And in a healthy democracy, you have a huge turnout. We want a high percentage of the eligible voters in this country to vote. It's the right, it's the best thing for for democracy is that as many people are represented as possible and as many voters turn out as possible. 76 for Biden at the moment, 71 okay. for Trump. I think that's actually first and second most votes ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So very, very high turnout, which the democracy uh, champion in me says that's amazing. So on Thursday night, I think it was, Trump had a news conference um, from the White House where he made a few proclamations, one being that, quote, if you count the legal votes, I easily win, uh, end quote. And then he also discussed relative interference by by big money and big tech and the broader media, and that this kind of, you know, this kind of interference is, is indicative of some sort of corruption going on. So question one, you know, did you watch his speech on Thursday night? 
And question two, what do you make of his comments? I didn't watch it. I'm not surprised by anything that he said. And, you know, there are conversations because there have been elections that have been decided uh, legally, you know, in the 2000s. The 2000 election with Bush and Gore was a legal, it became a, a legal battle and it was decided in the court. And Bush flipped Florida and that, you know, that took away enough electoral votes from Gore and gave enough electoral votes to Bush that he won. And so there is precedence in our in our democracy for it to come down to a court decision. I would say, and this is where I feel very comfortable and I, I feel a lot of calm, is that there are too many states that can sort of map out Biden's 270 and there is not enough legal grounds that anyone can really find or evidence to warrant as much legal action as would require to change the results of the election. You know, I think, and it's already happened in multiple court filings where they're not able to make a strong enough case to even prompt an investigation or a shift in the results. And so what I make of it is, you know, it's the culmination of Trump's behavior and attitude in the world. And this may be a, a very decisive moment where he doesn't get what he wants because the institution that he is messing with and pushing against is designed to to be actually quite be quite strong. The election process in the U.S. is actually designed to be quite uh, robust. Even local politicians and state legislators on both sides, Republican and Democratic, but notably Republican, because that's the same party as the president, are talking about and holding press conferences about the validity of their counting and the accuracy of their the local election and the validity of their, you know, the voting process in their states, in their counties. You know, so I think that I'm less surprised by Trump's rhetoric. I'm more surprised by the quietness of the Republican Party to congratulate the president-elect or even acknowledge uh, the president-elect, even if you don't want to congratulate someone. Yes. And a good chunk of those Republican lawmakers and uh, presidential allies have shot away uh, from confronting the president or suggesting to him that he might be best to concede at this point. I've seen stuff online, comments made by by Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, even Mitch McConnell's comments yesterday, uh, I thought were striking. It's unbelievable. You know, Mitch McConnell's a great example. He was celebrating the success of House and Senate victories and holding certain positions and gaining certain positions, right, which everyone votes on, on the same ballot that they vote for president. Uh, and then in the same token saying, you know, he's, he's not sure about the presidential outcome. It just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense uh, if you were to look at it logically. It makes sense if you think about the general approach and function of, and I'll, I'll say that the Republicans, but the political establishment that the Republicans have created, which is sort of like a one version of reality, right? And the, and the rules, the rules, you know, that they, they pick and choose the rules that, that resonate for them or their outcomes or their, their agenda, and they really lean into it. That part's impressive. They're very good at that. The 71 or so million people that voted for Donald Trump this year, obvious that he, that he has a very engaged base still. So I would think his comments that he made Thursday night at the White House and subsequent comments that he's tweeted out on social media or that he shared on Fox are potentially very dangerous for the U.S. long term, certainly in the context of trusting in the integrity of the country's electoral process. So beyond whatever decision we get to here, 
in 2020. What do you think this kind of rhetoric does to the state of democracy in America? You know, this is the same rhetoric that he had for the almost the entire election cycle, that there would be mass fraud, that, you know, he was encouraging his people to really go and like be at the polls and make sure that there was nothing nefarious happening. And he was really, you know, it, it's the same that the, that if he loses, it's because it's stolen from him. And I think that the good news is, I think more people voted in this election than any election since at least 1900. And the other good news is there, there weren't a lot of reports or stories, at least that I saw in the media of voter intimidation or, you know, violence or any really inappropriate behavior around actual voting stations and where people showed up. And I think that's a good sign. I don't think overall it's going to nudge us in the wrong direction. What I do think, and this is why he won in 2016, in my opinion, uh, Trump speaks to a large population in the U.S. that feels afraid of what's happening in the world. And that resonates for them. And it gets them to vote. And so, you know, I hope that four years of him not being in the White House shows some people that there are other people out there in the world that want them to have a better life and a, and a more prosperous life as well. There's just other ways of doing it. And, and hopefully, hopefully that you know, instills some confidence in the system and in the process. It's been a very damaging four years in the United States, globally, domestically. You know. And so uh, hopefully in, you know, Biden's been talking about this, his campaign's been talking about this. Hopefully there's some time for healing. You know, Biden is a legitimately empathetic human being. And I think that's an incredibly important quality in a leader. And so hopefully some of that empathy rolls out in the policies and the and and the initiatives that he looks into and and, and promote. Let's stay on this Biden Harris ticket for a moment. It, it feels like if you know things go smoothly and there's a, a peaceful uh, transition of power, that they still face a pretty big uphill battle with respect to their mandates. There's climate change, racial injustice, uh, the economy. These are all going to be top priorities. Um, they've made it clear that COVID will be the first line item here. But these other issues that the U.S. is facing, what do you anticipate they'll focus on and, and what meaningful changes do you expect to happen? Yeah, I mean, coronavirus is, is number one. You know, for, for as long as we are grappling with the impact and the and the damage that it's creating both just from a the lives casualties but also livelihood and economic there's there's not a lot else you can do and so it has to be number one they have their task force you know someone notably said that it's a task force without any relatives of biden on it i think the economy is huge i was talking to someone yesterday and i can't for the life of me fully understand the delta between the market the stock market and like main street and human capital what's happening with jobs and and people's ability to work it, it it's it's a there's a massive gap and that is going to show itself at some point unlikely in the trump administration because he's coming to an end and so you know the biden administration if they have a republican senate is going to struggle with a lot of initiatives around stimulus because the Republicans will decide. There's a high likelihood that it'll be a Republican controlled Senate. And so, you know, 
Trump out of the picture, Biden has been in Washington a very long time. And I know that that's a detractor from a lot of people, but the people that are really holding the strings have also been in Washington a very long time. And so I think he has, I think he has the, the experience and the relationships with, I mean, he's served in the Senate with a lot of these people to try and get something going. There might be concessions on both sides, but even, even that would, would, uh, would be more productive. Traditionally, if you look at the last 30 years, uh, stock markets outperform if you don't, you're not, not looking at their peaks, but if you look at their percent gain under Democratic presidents, even, even Trump's America didn't outperform Obama or Clinton from a percent gain. And so I think that there, there's a lot of potential in economic recovery. Are there any issues that were top of mind, say, six to 12 months ago in the U.S. that received a lot of media attention? Um, for example, defunding the police that you expect to just go away or disappear? So what do you anticipate might happen there? Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think that, you know, the top ones that you mentioned, I mean, the, the West Coast has been burning for the better part of the year. The defund the police, it's, it's a really interesting conversation, and I think it's a super important one, and I hope it gets the air, the airspace that it needs to make changes. I do think that, like, that's going to be handled at a municipality and state level, and maybe, I don't know, I wouldn't, I, I can't imagine the federal government making a decision about certain federal funds based on certain states' um, perspectives on, on defunding the police. But, so I think those initiatives will still be pushed at local levels, and I hope they are. You know, there's there's a lot of important rhetoric around and, and exploration of people are so afraid of defunding the police and people get so triggered that they, you know, we defund education, we defund all sorts of other services at, at state levels. So it's not an, it's not a um, unknown or unusual tactic at a state level. It's just a slightly um, unfamiliar target, the police. I want to come back to Trump for a moment. He's launched a flurry of lawsuits. So given that he he trails by, it seems like now at this point, too many votes in too many states for recounts to sway the results in his favor. What do you think is his strategy here? Uh, I don't think he has a strategy. Do you think it's, do you think there's any, do you think this is fear-based to the extent that he may face personal prosecution from the state of New York for things like fraud or tax evasion? Is that in his line of thinking? You know, generally the things that he's most defensive about you know, or, or claims that other people are doing X, Y, and Z or are, you know, are, are, are typically the things that are most real. He, you know, he's constantly investigated for, for fraud. There's, there's case after case around fraud. So I could understand him pointing at other people and saying, well, the only way to get anything done is to be fraudulent. I could understand that, you know, or he has a history all the way back to the Central Park Five and taking out a full page ad about how they should be, that they should, they should get the death penalty. You know, he, he has a history of unbelievably racist perspectives and, and, you know, divisive perspectives. And to say I'm the least racist person in the room to a black woman, you know, like they're just, they're, they're unbelievable things that he says. And so I would say that, you know, he, I felt this way from the beginning. There's nothing about his presidency that wasn't reflected in his campaign in 2016. And so there's nothing about him losing that is surprising that doesn't reflect everything that he has shown us before. And so I don't know what the strategy is. You know, he has made a habit of bankrupting businesses. And I think he was really trying very hard to bankrupt the United States and break the United States. That's It's what he's done very well, is break things. 
I would expect the next 70 days or so to be pretty bumpy in this regard. Uh, it's clear he's not going to go down quietly, um, especially if he smells that he's losing whatever momentum he has left. What have you been reading in terms of what people are anticipating he might try and pull off in these last couple of months? You know, I haven't seen a lot yet because I think that people don't quite know what is technically possible, right? So he's a lame duck president for two months, meaning, you know, he doesn't have the, the vote of the American people and or the electoral vote. So he's he's going to be, you know, gone in two months. And so historically, it might make for a rather quiet two months. But that seems like very wishful thinking. It is. So I would say that we're probably going to expect the opposite of that, but it's hard to say what would someone do? Like what would a president do if they were trying to burn the system down or if they were trying to create as much problems, as many problems as possible? It's hard to say. I think the biggest thing that's come up is like preemptively granting clemency to people um, who, you know, so that they, if they are committed of any federal crimes um, that they aren't, you know, that they actually don't get prosecuted. I don't think there's a law that says you can't grant yourself clemency. So like there's all sorts of stuff um, in that regard, but it's hard to say exactly what he could, exactly what he could like break. Like right now, the, the, would say the most technical thing that's happening that's a little unusual or very unusual is in the process of transition, the incoming, the incoming president and his, his staff and campaign they get granted a certain level of resources from the federal government. And it's, it's initiated by the uh, GSA, uh, Government Service Administration. And that document hasn't been filed yet, which is very unusual because the current administration isn't acknowledging a Biden victory. And so funds aren't being distributed to the Biden transition team uh, they're not getting, they, they haven't been granted access for expedited security clearance and personnel security clearances so that they can start getting the security briefings, which is totally standard. Uh, the way every incoming president starts to get the same security briefings that the sitting president has um, to ensure a as, as balanced a transition as possible. And so that could be a glimpse into some of the sort of dragging it out. Or that could be the extent. It's really, it's almost impossible to say. I would say clemency is going to be very interesting uh, to see what he puts forward and who. And I don't think, I don't think, I, I don't know. There hasn't been a lot of chatter about other things. There, the one thing though, for sure, is that we are, the people are expecting it to be all over the place and unpredictable and potentially damaging. With respect to pardoning, um, just looking at an article that Reuters published on the 8th of November. In 2018, Trump said he has, quote, the absolute right to pardon himself, a claim yeah. that many constitutional law scholars dispute. What do you make of the right-wing media who has long been a supporter of his and a contributor, certainly a big contributor to the success that he's had? Do you expect Fox, Fox News, and the broader conservative media to continue to embrace his rhetoric, regardless of what he does or says over the next couple of months? Probably. I mean, 71 million people voted for him. He is he has a ratings uh, draw, which is the number one metric for most news organizations. Valid point. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, 
I think we'll probably be hearing from him for a while. The good news is he won't be the president. And so that is slightly calming. (laughs) There are rumblings, though, that he might run again in 2024. I hope he runs in 2024. And I hope that the Republican Party doesn't give it to him. And I hope that he runs as an independent and they completely split the conservative vote between him and whatever other Republican candidate is running at the time who feels that they're more moderate and that the Democrat completely crushes them because he'll divide the vote, no doubt. Or he'll beat the Republican, but he won't have anywhere near the votes to beat the Democrat. Who are the other Republican front-running names at this point? Is it Marco Rubio? Um, You know, based on Marco Rubio's comments in Florida that really echoed Trump's cheering on of the, uh, like the, the, the caravan of trucks and cars that drove a Biden bus off the road in Texas, Marco Rubio was at a rally and he was saying, well, we do that in Florida. They just haven't reported on it. He seemed really proud of that. And I had this flash where I'm like, okay, Rubio is setting up to take on the sort of like fever pitch, like alt-right energy. And so that felt, that felt legit. I mean, Romney's got a lot of gas in the tank. I think he would be the most competitive of candidates if you were thinking about traditional politics. You know, I think we'll probably see similar to the Democratic field this year, which was unbelievably large. I bet we'll see something similar for the Republicans in 2024, and they'll let it play out over the course of the the primaries, and it'll be very interesting. And so we'll see in four years. You know, I think Kamala, I mean, Kamala will be, we'll have a foundation and we'll see how compelling, you know, the case is. I don't, Biden won't run again. I, I, I would be shocked. He's, no offense, a little old. Yeah. Uh, he's 78, I think at this point, but, um, he, he's exactly the age that I think Trump would be if he ran again in 2024. I think they're four years apart or something like that. Yeah. Speaking of predictable or the unpredictable Dow rallied yesterday up 800 points on Pfizer's news of this vaccine that is in the works, um, in late stage of trials. It looks like it's, it's 90% effective at this point in preventing infection. Interesting that, this was the first, I think, first trading day after the election was conclusively called, because I think the election was called on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. So you have this kind of perfect storm of an election outcome in combination with this news uh, as it relates to this this vaccine. So so pretty good news all around, I guess. It's very promising from a, from just like a there is progress standpoint, you know, as an everyday citizen and someone who would like to uh, to get over this and beyond it. I don't, it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, I think a lot of uh, any, any country's ability to respond or roll out a vaccine of this scale, I mean, it needs to be available for everyone. And so that requires a ton of production, a, a ton of logistics. Uh, I am a lot more confident in a new administration's ability to do that. And so I feel good about that. Um, you know, Trump spent a lot of time talking about how, you know, democratic cities and states were basically causing all these problems. And I, I would be afraid of retribution uh, being in a democratic enclave in the mid-Atlantic as far as having access. I'm not as concerned with the new administration. Uh, as Biden said, he would be president for everyone. That's how it works. But I don't, you know, I don't know the exact backdrop of what deals and what what arrangements have been made as far as stockpiles and distribution. You know, it's an interesting data point on this. Pfizer was not part of Operation Warp Speed, Albert 
Boria, who is the current chairman and CEO, has attempted to distance Pfizer and the production of this vaccine from the current administration, despite what Trump has been saying. So high irony, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You know, there, there's a little bit of everything they touch lights on fire. And so I could see wanting to create that space and that, um, and, 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 uh, and that difference, you know, and, and almost everything, at least ec- externally speaking, you know, every company, every person is a prop in a lot of the, a lot of the campaign in the, the, I would say Trump's administration, right? Oh, these people support me and it's just a photo op or, oh, this company. And it's just, it's a prop in trying to paint a picture. And so I could imagine Pfizer wanted to just focus on the work and, and what they're here for. Yeah. And, and all of us will be better for that. Uh, certainly in the context of, of rushing through a vaccine or an announcement of a vaccine for political purposes. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely some interesting observations that the announcement came a week after, after the election yeah. and also technically after the election was called. Um, and so there was some speculation that Maybe they didn't want to add any momentum uh-huh. for the current administration. I don't have any information on that, but I was intrigued by that. Well, thank you again for for, for giving us this, the state of play down in the U.S. It's so helpful to um, get somebody get somebody's perspective who's who's not only based in the U.S. but based in Washington. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Thanks for having me. Maybe we'll talk in the next one about entrepreneurship. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.